So yeah, this is a document which came, which I first saw at three o'clock this morning, I think. It claims to be leaked from Google. There's good reasons to believe it is leaked from Google. And to be honest, if it's not, it doesn't actually matter because the quality of the analysis, I think, stands alone. If this was just a document by some anonymous person, I'd still think it was interesting and worth discussing. And the title of the document is, We Have No Moat and Neither Does OpenAI. And the argument it makes is that while Google and OpenAI have been competing on training bigger and bigger language models, the open source community is already starting to outrun them, given only a couple of months of really, like, really, really serious activity. You know, Facebook Llama was the thing that really kicked this off. There were open source language models like Bloom before that and GPTJ, and they weren't very impressive. Like, nobody was really thinking that they were ChatGPT equivalent. Facebook Llama came out in March, I think March 15th, and was the first one that really sort of showed signs of being as capable maybe as chat gpt my i don't i think all of these models they've been the analysis of them has tend to be a bit hyped like i don't think any of them are even quite up to gpt 3.5 standards yet but they're within spitting distance in some respects so anyway llama came out and then two weeks later stanford alpaca came out which was fine-tuned on top of llama and was a massive leap forward in terms of quality and then a week after that vicuna came out which is to this date, the, the best model I've been able to run on my own hardware. And I've run it on my mobile phone now. Like, it's astonishing how little resources you need to run these things. But anyway, the, the argument that this paper makes, which I found very convincing, is it only took open source two months to get this far. It's now every researcher in the world is kicking in on new, new things. But it feels like there, being, there, there are problems that Google have been trying to solve that the open source models are already addressing. And really... How do you compete with that? Like with your closed ecosystem, how are you going to beat these open models with all of this innovation going on? But then the most interesting argument in there is it talks about the size of models and says that maybe large isn't a competitive advantage. Maybe actually a smaller model with lots of like different people fine-tuning it and having these sort of these LoRa, L-O-R-A, stackable fine-tuning innovations on top of it, maybe those can move faster. And actually having to retrain your giant model every few months from scratch is, is way less useful than having small models that you can, tr you can fine tune in a couple of hours on a laptop. So it's, it's fascinating. I, I basically, if you haven't read this thing, you should read every word of it. It's not very long. It's beautifully written. Like it, it's, I mean, if you try and find the quotable lines in it, almost every line of it's quotable. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that, that, that's the status of this thing. That's a wonderful summary, Simon. Yeah, there, there's so many angles we can take to this. I'll just observe one one thing, which if you think about the open versus closed narrative, Imad Mostak, who is the CEO of Stability, has always been that open will trail behind closed because the closed alternatives can always take learnings and lessons from open source. And this is the first highly credible statement that is basically saying the exact opposite, that open source is moving than, than, than closed source, and they are scared. They seem to be scared, um, which is <laughs> interesting. Travis, uh, Yeah, the, 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 a few things that, that I'll, I'll, I'll say. The only thing which can keep up with the pace of AI these days is open source. I think we're, we're seeing that unfold in real time before our eyes. And you know, I think the other interesting angle of this is to some degree, LLMs are, they, they don't really have switching costs. They are going to be become commoditized. At least that's, that's what a lot of, a lot of people kind of think. To, to what extent is it, is it a, a rate in terms of, of pricing of these things? And, you know, they all kind of become 
roughly the, the, the same in, in terms of their their underlying abilities. And and open source is going to going to be actively pushing pushing that forward. And and then this is kind of coming from if it is to be believed, you know, the, the kind of Google or an insider type type mentality around, you know, where is the actual competitive advantage? What should they be focusing on? How can they get back in into the game? Uh, when you know, when 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 currently the the, the external view of, of Google is that they're kind of spinning their wheels and they have this code red and you know it's like they're they're playing catch up already. Like uh, you know, could they use the open source community and work with them? Which is going to be really really hard, you know, from a structural perspective, given Google's place in the ecosystem. But a, a lot lot of, lot of jumping off points there. I was gonna say, I think the post is really focused on how do we get the best model but it's not focused on like how do you build the best product around it a lot of these models are limited by how many gpus you can get to run them you know and we've seen on traditional open source like everybody can use some of these projects like kafka and like elastic for free but the reality is that not everybody can afford to run the infrastructure needed for it so i think like the main takeaway that i have from this is like a lot of the modes are probably around just getting the the sand, so to speak, and having the GPUs to actually serve these models. Because even if the best model is open source, like running it at large scale for an app is not easy and like it's not super convenient to get a lot of the, a lot of the infrastructure. And we've seen that model work in open source, where you have the open source project and then you have a enterprise cloud hosted version for it. I think that's going to look really different in open source models because just hosting a model doesn't have a lot of value. So. I'm curious to hear how people end up getting rewarded to do open source. You know, it's we figured that out in infrastructure, but we haven't figured that out in in LLMs yet. I mean, one thing I'll say is that the, the models that you can run on your own devices are so far ahead of what I ever dreamed they would be at this point. Like the Cuna 13B, I I, I think is the current best available open model that I've played with. It's derived from Facebook Llama, so you can't use it for commercial purposes yet. But the point about Makina 13B is it runs in the browser directly on web GPU. There's this amazing web LLM project where you literally, your browser downloads a two gigabyte file and it fires up a chat GPT style interface and it's quite good. It can do rap battles between different animals and all of the kinds of fun stuff that you'd expect to be able to do with a language model running entirely in Chrome Canary. It's shocking to me that that's even possible. But that kind of shows that once, once you get to inference, if you can shrink the model down and the techniques for shrinking these models, the, the first one was the, the quantization, which the Llama.cpp project really sort of popularized. And that can, you know, by using four bits instead of 16 bit floating point numbers, you can shrink it down quite a lot. And then there was a paper that came out days ago suggesting that you can prune the models and ditch half the model and maintain the same level of quality. So with, with things like that, with all of these tricks coming together, it's really astonishing how much you can get done on hardware that people actually have in their pockets even. Just for completion, I've been following all of your posts. Oh, sorry. Yes. Uh, uh, I just want to follow up. Simon, you're, you said you're running a model on your phone. Which model is it? And uh, I don't think you've written it up. Yeah, that one's Vicuna. I did. Did I write it up? I did. I've got a blog post about how it, 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 it knows who I am, sort of. But it said that I invented a, a, a pattern for living called the bear or bunny pattern, which I definitely didn't. But I love that my phone decided that I did. I will hunt for that because I'm not 
yet running Vicuña on my phone, and I feel like I should, and, and as like a very base thing. But I'll, okay, I'll, I'll follow up two things, right? Like one, I'm very interested in, and I won't, let's, let's talk about that a little bit more because this concept of stackable improvements to models, I think, is extremely interesting. Like I would love to npm install ab- ab- abilities onto my models, right? Which is really awesome. But the the first thing I think is under discussed is I don't get the panic, like. Honestly, like Google has the most moats. I, I was arguing maybe like three months ago on my blog, like Google has the most moat out of a lot of people because, hey, we have your calendar. Hey, we have your email. Hey, we have your you know Google Docs. Like, isn't that a, a sufficient moat? Like, why are these guys panicking so much? I don't, I still don't get it. Like, sure, you know, open source is running ahead and like it's, it's on device and whatever, what have you, but they have so much more moat. Like, what are we talking about here? There's many dimensions to compete on. Yeah, there's like one of one of the the things that that the author you know mentions in in here is when when you start to to, to have the feeling of what we're trailing behind, then your 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 brightest researchers you know jump ship and go to OpenAI or go to work at at, at Academia or whatever, and, and like the talent drain at the the level of the the senior AI researchers that are pushing these things ahead within Google, I think is a serious serious concern, and. My my take on it's a good point, right? Like 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 what Google has most they, they they're not running out of money anytime soon, you know. I think they they do see the level of the the defensibility and and the fact that they want to be a time and the the, the the leader around pretty much anything tech first. There's definitely ha, ha, have lost that 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 feeling, right? And you know, to what degree they can they can with the the open source community to to get that back. And, and help drive that, you know, all of the llama mm-hmm. subset of models yeah. with, mm-hmm. with alpaca and vicuna, et cetera, that all came from, from meta, right? Like that. Yeah. Like it's not licensed in an open way where you can build a company on top of it, but is now kind of driving this family of, of models. Like there's a tree of models that, that they're, they're leading. And, and where is Google in that, in that playbook? Like for a long time, they were the one releasing those models being super open. And, and now it's just, they, they seem to be trailing and there's, there's people jumping ship and to what degree can they, can they, can they close off those wounds and, and focus on, on where, where they, they have unique ability to, to, to gain momentum, I think is a core part of my takeaway from this. Yeah. And I think another big thing in the post is, oh, as long as you have high quality data, like you don't need that much data, you can just use that. The first party data loops are probably going to be the most important going forward if we do believe that this is true. So Databrick, we have Mike Conover from Databricks on the podcast, and they talked about how they came up with the training set for Dolly, which they basically had Databricks employees write down very good questions and very good answers for it. Not every company has the scale to do that. And I think you know products like Google, they have millions of people writing Google Docs, they have millions of people using Google Sheets, they have millions of people writing stuff, creating content on YouTube. The question is, if you want to compete against these companies, maybe the model is not what you're going to do it with because the open source kind of commoditizes it. But how do you build even better data first party loops? And that's kind of the hardest thing for startups, right? Like even if we open up the the models to everybody and everybody can just go on GitHub and or hugging face and get the weights to the best model, but get enough people to generate data for me so that I can still make it good. That's that's what I would be worried about if I was a, a new company. How do I make that happen really quickly? 
I'm not convinced that the data is that big a challenge. So uh, there's this project. So the problem with Facebook Llama is that it's not available for, for commercial use. So people are now trying to train a alternative to Llama that's entirely on openly licensed data. And the, the biggest project around that is this Red Pajama project. They released their training data a few weeks ago, and it was 2.7 terabytes, right? So actually tiny, right? You can buy a laptop that you can fit 2.7 terabytes on. But it was the same exact data that Facebook, it was the same thing that Facebook Lama had been trained on. Because for your base model, you're not really trying to teach it facts about the world. You're just trying to teach it how English and other languages work, how they fit together. And then the real magic is when you fine tune on top of that. That's what Alpaca did on top of Lama and so on. And the fine tuning sets, it looks like, like tens of thousands of examples to kick one of these raw models into shape. And tens of thousands of examples, like Databricks spent a month and got the 2,000 employees of their company to help kick in, and it worked. <clears throat> You've got the Open Assistant Project and crowdsourcing the stuff now as well. So it's achievable. Sort of. I agree. I think it's a f- fascinating point. Actually, so I've heard through the grapevine that Red Pajamas model trained on the, the data that they release is going to be releasing tomorrow. And uh, it's, it's a very exciting time because the, 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 there's, a, there's a couple more models that are coming down the pike, which are independently reproduced. And so, yeah, that we, everyone is challenging all these assumptions from, from first principles, which is uh, fascinating. <laughs> I, I, did, I did wanted to, to like, try to get a little bit more technical in terms of like, the, 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 the specific points raised because this doc, this doc was just amazing. Can we talk about Laura? I, I, I'll open it up to Simon again if he's back. I'd rather someone else take on Laura. I, I, I know as much as I've read in that paper, but not much more than that. So I thought this was kind of like an optimization technique. So Laura stands for low rank adaptation. But this is the first mention of Laura as a form of stackable improvements where he, I forget what, let me just, let me just kind of Google this. But obviously anyone more knowledgeable, please so uh, come on in. I, yeah. Uh, all I've learned is through ChatGPT. I spent about 20 minutes on GPT-4 <laughs> trying to figure out what it was. I studied computer science, but this is not this is not my area of expertise. What I got from it is that basically, instead of having to retrain the whole model, you can just pick one of the ranks and you take one of like the the weight matrices and like make two smaller matrices from it, and then just two to be retrained and training the whole model. So all these it takes a lot of. Yeah, you freeze part of the thing and then you just train a smaller part. Like that, exactly. that, that seems to be an area of a lot of fruitful research. Uh, yeah. I think uh, MiniGPT4 recently did something similar as well. And then there's, 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 a, there's a sparse model people out today that uh, mm-hmm. also did the same thing. So and I've seen what, a lot of Laura bit stable. The, the stable diffusion community have been using Laura a lot. So that, in that case, they had a, I, the thing I've seen is people releasing Laura's that are like, you, you train a concept like a, a particular person's face or something, you release, and the, the lower version of this ends up being megabytes of data, like which is, is you know, it's small enough that you can just trade those around and you can effectively load multiple of those into the model. But what I hadn't realized is that you can use the same trick on, on language models. That was one of the big new things for me in reading the, the leaked Google paper today. Yeah, and I think the point to make around owning the infrastructure, so what ChatGPT has told me is that when you're figuring out what rank you actually want to do this fine-tuning at, you can have either go too low and like the model doesn't actually learn it, or you can go too high and the model overfits those learnings. So if you have a base model that everybody agrees on, then all the subsequent like LoRa work is done around the same rank which gives you an advantage. And the point they made in the, is that since Llama has been the base for a lot of this Laura work, like they own the, the mind share of the community. So 
everything that they're building is compatible with their architecture. But if Google open sources their own model, you know, the rank that they chose for Lora on Llama might not work on the Google model. So all of the existing work is not portable. So the impression I got is that one of the challenges with Lora is that you train all these Loras on top of your model. But then if you retrain that base model, those Loras become invalid, right? They're essentially, they're, they're, they're built yeah. for an exact model version. So this means that being the big company with all of the GPUs that can afford to retrain a model every three months, that's suddenly not nearly as valuable as it used to be. Because now maybe there's an open source model that's five years old at this point and has like multiple, multiple stacks of LoRa's trained all over the world on top of it, which can outperform your brand new model just because there's been so much more iteration on that base. I, I think it's I think it's fascinating. It's, uh, Jim Fan from uh, Nvidia was recently making this argument for transformers. Like even if we do come up with a better architecture than transformers, there the sheer hundreds and millions of dollars that have been invested on top of transformers make it actually uh, there is some switching costs, and it's not exactly obvious that better yeah. equals <laughs> equals that we should all switch immediately tomorrow. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of like the the difficulty of launching a new programming language today. Yes is that Python and JavaScript have a million packages. So no matter how good your new language is, if it can't tap into those existing package libraries, it's, it's not going to be useful for yes. Which is why Mojo is so clever, because they did build on top of Python, so they get all of that existing infrastructure, all of that existing code working already. I mean, what, what we thought you, since you're, you know, co-creator Django and all that, do, do we want to take a diversion into Mojo? Yeah. Oh, no, I would, I, I'd be happy to, to, to jump in and get Simon's take on, on Mojo. One, one, one small, small point on Laura is... You know, I, I just think if you think about at a high level what the, the major down, downsides are of these, these large language models, it's the fact that they, well, they're, they're difficult to, to, to train, right? They, they tend to hallucinate and they uh, are, have, have a static, like, like they were trained at a certain date, right? And with, with Laura, I think it makes it a lot more amenable to training new, new updates on top of that, that like base model on the fly where you can, you know, incorporate new, new data and in a way that is, is, is an interesting and potentially more optimal alternative than in the kind of in-context generation, you know, cause, cause most of like we have perplexity.ai or, or any of these, these approaches currently, it's like all based off of doing real-time searches and injecting as much into the, the, the local context window as possible so that you, you try to ground your, 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 your language model both in terms of the, the information it has access to that, that, that helps to reduce hallucinations. It can't reduce it, but, you know, helps to reduce it. And then also gives it access to up-to-date information that wasn't around for that, that massive, like, like pre-training stuff. And, you know, I think Laura in, in mind really uh, makes it more, more amenable to having, having constantly shifting lightweight pre-training on top of it that scales better than, than normal pre- uh, fine-tune, fine-tuning. Yeah, that, that was just kind of my one takeaway there. I mean, for me, I've never been, I want to run models on my own hardware. I don't actually care about their factual content. Like I don't need a model that's been, that's trained on the most up-to-date things. What I need is a model that can do the Bing and Bard trick, right? That can tell when it needs to run a search and then go and run a search to get extra information and, and bring that context in. And similarly, I want it to be able to operate tools where it can access my email or look at my notes or all of those kinds of things. And I don't think you need a very powerful model for that. 
like that's one of the things where I feel like, yeah, Bakuna running on my on my laptop is probably powerful enough to drive a sort of personal research assistant, which can look things up for me and it can summarize things from my own notes and it can do all of that. And I don't care that it doesn't know about the Ukraine war because the Ukraine war had a training cutoff. That doesn't matter if it's got those additional capabilities, which are quite easy to build. You know, the reason everyone's going crazy building agents and tools right now is that it's a few lines of Python code and a sort of couple of paragraphs of prompt to get it to work. Well, let's 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 maybe dig in on that a little bit. And this this also is is very related to Mojo because I, I do think there are use cases and domains where having uh, the, the hyper optimized like uh, version of these models running on device is is very relevant. Where you can't necessarily make API calls out, you know, on the fly and aug- do context uh, augmented you know generation. And I was I was talking with with a, a researcher at Lockheed Martin yesterday literally about like like the the version of this that's running of of language models running on on fighter jets right and you you talk about like the 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 amount of engineering precision and optimization that has to go into to those type of models and the fact that that you spend so much money like like training a super distilled you know version where milliseconds matter you know it's a life or death situation there you know and you couldn't even even remotely have, have a use case there where you could like call out and and have have api calls or something so i i do think there's like keeping in mind the, the uh, use cases where where there'll be use cases that I'm more excited about, you know, at, at the application level where, where yeah, I, I want to, to just have it be super flexible and be able to call out to APIs and have this agentic type type thing. And then there's also industries and, and use cases where, where you really need everything baked into the model. Yep, agreed. <laughs> my, my favorite piece to take on this is I think GPT-4 as a reasoning engine, which I think came from the from Nathan at Every.2. Which I think, uh, yeah, I see the hundred score over there. Simon, do you, do you have a, a few seconds on Mojo? Sure. So Mojo is a brand new programming language. It was just announced a few days ago. It's not actually available yet. So I think there's an online demo, but presuming it becomes an open source language we can use. It's got really some very interesting characteristics. It's a superset of Python. So anything written in Python will just work, but it adds additional features on top that let you basically do very highly optimized code written in Python syntax, but that compiles down. The the main thing that's exciting about it is the pedigree that it comes from. It's a team led by Chris Latner, built LLVM and Clang, and then he designed Swift at Apple. So he's got like three, three for three on an extraordinarily impactful high performance computing product. And he put together this team and they've basically, they're trying to go after the problem of how do you build a language which you can do really high performance optimized work in, but where you don't have to do everything again from scratch. And that's where building on top of Python is so clever. So I wasn't, like if this thing came along, I, I didn't really pay attention to it until J- Jeremy Howard, who built Fast AI, put up a very detailed blog post about why he was excited about Mojo, which included a, there's a video demo in there, which everyone should watch because in that video, he takes matrix multiplication implemented in Python, and then he uses the Mojo extras to 2000x the performance of that matrix multiplication. Like he adds a few static type functions, sort of struct instead of a class, and he gets 2000 times the performance out of it, which is phenomenal, like absolutely extraordinary. So yeah, and that, that got me really excited. Like the idea that we can still use Python and all of this stuff we've got in Python, but we can just very slightly tweak some things and get literally like a thousand times upwards performance out of the things that matter. That's really exciting. Yeah, I, I, I'm curious, like how come this wasn't thought of before? It's not like 
the 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 concept of a language superset hasn't you know hasn't has has is is completely new. But all as far as I know, all the previous Python interpreter approaches, like the alternative runtime approaches, are you know like they they they're more they're more sort of fit conforming to standard Python, but never really tried this additional approach of augmenting the language. I, I'm wondering if you have any insights there on, on like why like why is this a, a a breakthrough? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So Jeremy Howard's piece talks about this thing called MLIR, which I hadn't heard of before, but this was another Chris Latner project. You know, he built LLVM as a low-level virtual machine that you could build compilers on top of. And then MLIR was this one that he initially kicked off at Google. And I think it's part of TensorFlow and things like that, but it was very much optimized for multiple cores and GPU access and all of that kind of thing. And so my reading of Jeremy Howard's article is that they basically built Mojo on top of MLIR. So they had a huge, huge like a starting point where they'd already, I mean, they, they knew this technology better than anyone else. And because they had this very, very robust, high-performance basis that they could build things on. I think maybe they're just the first people to try and build a high time, try and combine a high-level language with MLIR with some extra things. So it feels like they're basically taking a whole bunch of ideas people have been sort of experimenting with over the last decade and bundled them all together with exactly the right team, the right level of expertise. And it looks like they've got the thing to work. But yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I'm very intrigued to see, especially once this is actually available and we can start using it. it, it Jeremy Howard is someone I respect very deeply, and he's he's hyping this thing like crazy, right? His headline, his, and he's not the kind of person who hypes things if they're not worth hyping. He said, Mojo may be the biggest programming language advanced in decades. And from anyone else, I'd kind of ignore that headline, but from him, it, it really means something. Yes, because he doesn't hype things up randomly. Uh, yeah, and, and and he's a noted skeptic of Julia, which is which is also another data science hot topic. But from the TypeScript and web web development worlds, there has been a dialect of TypeScript that was specifically optimized to compile to WebAssembly, uh, which I thought was like promising, and then and, and eventually it never really took off. But I, I like this approach because I think more frameworks should should essentially be languages and recognize that they are language supersets and maybe work on compilers that that work on them and then that is the by the way that's the direction that react is going right now so fun times <laughs> huh. so typescript is an interesting comparison actually because typescript is effectively a superset of javascript right it is but there's yeah, no and... angle it's purely types right gotcha Right, so, so I guess Mojo is the superset of Python, but the emphasis is absolutely on tapping into the performance stuff. Right, well, the, just things people the, actually care about. <laughs> yeah, the, the one thing I found is, is very similar to the early days of TypeScript. There was the, 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 the most important thing was that it's incrementally adoptable, you know, because people had JavaScript code bases and, and they wanted to incrementally like add the, the, the main value prop for TypeScript was reliability and the, 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 the static typing. And with Mojo, we see it being basically anyone who's a target, a large enterprise user of, of Mojo, or even researchers, like they're all going to be coming from a, a hardcore back, background in, in Python and, and have large existing libraries. And the, the question will be, for what use cases will Mojo be like a, a really good fit for that incremental adoption where you can still tap into your, your, your massive like Python existing infrastructure, workflows, data tooling, et cetera. And, and you know, what is, what does that path to adoption look like? Uh, yeah, we, we, we don't know because it's a waitlisted language, which people were complaining about. They, they, the, the Mojo creators were like saying something about they had to scale up their servers. And I'm like, what language requires a central server? So it's a little bit sus. 
a little bit like uh, there's a there's a cloud product already in place and uh, you know they're uh, waiting for it but we'll see we'll see i think i mean mojo is extremely promising and i i actually want more programming language innovation this way you know i was complaining years ago that programming language innovation is all about stronger types all fun- all about like more functional more strong types everywhere and, and this is the first one that's actually much more practical which i which i really enjoy this is why i wrote about self-provisioning runtimes and i mean this is kind of related to the post right like if you stop all of a sudden, we're like, the models are all the same and we can improve them. Like, where can we get the improvements? You know, it's like better runtimes, better languages, better tooling, better data collection. Yeah. So, uh, if I were a founder today, I wouldn't worry as much about the model maybe, but I would say, okay, what can I build into my product? And like, or what can I do at the engineering level that maybe it's not model optimization because everybody's working on it, but like you said, it's like, why haven't people thought of this before? It's like, it's it's definitely super hard, but I'm sure that if you're like Google or you're like OpenAI or you're like Databricks, you got smart enough people that can think about these problems. So hopefully we see more of this. You need a slander. Okay, I promise to keep this relatively tight. I know Simon is on a beautiful day. It is a very nice day in California. I wanted to go through a few more points that you have pulled out, Simon, and, and just give you the opportunity to to rant and riff and and what have you. Are there any other points from going back to the sort of Google OpenAI moat documents that, that you felt like we, we should dive in on? I mean, the really interesting stuff there is the strategy component, right? The, this idea that, that Facebook accidentally stumbled into leading this because they put out this model that everyone else is innovating on top of. And there's a very open question for me as to would Facebook relicense Llama to allow for commercial usage? Yeah, is there some rumor? Is that, is that today? Is there a rumor about that? That would be interesting. Yeah, I saw I saw something about Zuck saying that he would release the, the Llama weights officially. Oh my goodness! No, that I admit that is that's huge. Uh, let me my... let me confirm the tweet. Let me find the tweet and then uh, okay. Because yeah. actually, I met somebody from Facebook machine learning research a couple of weeks ago, and I I pressed them on this, and they said basically they don't think it'll ever happen because if it happens and then somebody does horrible fascist stuff with this model, all of the headlines will be Berg releases a monster into the world. So, so his the, the the a couple of weeks ago, his feeling was that it's just too risky for them to to allow it to be used like that. But you know, a couple of weeks is 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 a couple of months in the AI world. So yeah, it wouldn't be. It feels to me like strategically, Facebook should be jumping right on this because this puts them at the very the very lead of of open source innovation around this stuff. So I've pinned the tweet talking about Zuck and Zuck saying that Meta will open up Llama. It's from the founder of Obsidian, which gives it a slight bit more credibility, but it is the only tweet that I can find about it. So completely unsourced. <laughs> we shall see. I, I, I mean, I have friends within Meta. I should just go ask them. But yeah, I, I mean, one interesting angle on, on the memo actually is is that, and, and they were linking to this in, in, in a doc, which is apparently like, Facebook got a bunch of people to do because they, they never released it for commercial use, but a lot of people went ahead anyway and, and optimized and, and built extensions and stuff. They they got a bunch of free work out of open source, <laughs> which is an interesting strategy. This okay, I, I don't know if I have oh, to like I've got an exciting piece of news. I've just heard from somebody with contacts at Google that they've heard people in Google confirm the leak that that document was indeed a legit Google document, which I don't find surprising at all, but I'm now up to a ten out of ten on, on whether that that's that's real. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, it is fascinating. Yeah, I mean, the the strategy is 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 really interesting. I think Google has been 
definitely sleeping on monetizing. You know, I, I heard someone call when Google Brain and DeepMind merged that they were, it was like goodbye to the Xerox Park of our era. And it definitely feels like Google X and Google Brain were definitely Xerox Parks of our, of our era. And I guess we all benefit from that. So one thing I'll say about the, the, the Google side of things, like the, there was a question earlier, why are Google so worried about this stuff? And I think it's, it's just all about the money. You know, the, the, the engine of money at Google is Google search and Google search ads. And who uses ChatGPT? GPT on a daily basis like me will have noticed that their usage of Google has dropped like a stone because there are many, many questions that, that ChatGPT, which shows you no ads at all, is, is, is a better source of information for than Google now. And so, yeah, I'm not, it doesn't surprise me that Google would see this as an existential threat because whether or not they can, be, you know, BARD, it's actually, it's not great, but it, it exists, but it hasn't yet either. And if I've got a chatbot chat bot that's not showing me ads and chatbot that is showing me ads, I'm going to pick the one that's not showing me ads. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I did see a prototype of Bing with ads, Bing chat with ads. I haven't um, seen the prototype yet, no. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I, I, it, it will come, obviously, and then we will choose, we'll, we'll go out of our way to avoid ads, just like we always do. We'll need ad blockers and chat. Excellent. So I feel like on the safety side, the, the safety side, there are basically two areas of safety that I, I, I sort of split it into. There's the science fiction scenarios, the AI breaking out and killing all humans and creating viruses and all of that kind of thing, the sort of the Terminator stuff. And then there's the, the people doing bad things with AI. And that latter one is the one that I think is much more interesting. And, you know, because you could you like things like romance scams, right? Romance scams already take billions of dollars from, from vulnerable people every year. Those are very easy to automate using existing tools. I'm pretty sure Vicuna 13B running on my laptop could spin up a pretty decent romance scam if I was evil and wanted to use it for that. So that's the kind of thing where I get really nervous about it. Like the fact that these models are out there and bad people can use these to do bad things. Most importantly, at scale, like romance scamming, you don't need a language model to pull off one romance scam. But if you want to pull off a thousand at once, the language model might be the, the thing that, that helps you scale to that point. And yeah, in terms of the science fiction stuff, and also a model on my laptop that can guess what comes next in a sentence, I'm not worried that that's going to break out of my laptop and destroy the world. I get slightly nervous about the huge number of people who are trying to build AGIs on top of this model, the baby AGI stuff and so forth, but I don't think they're going to get anywhere. I feel like if you actually wanted a model that was, was a threat to humanity, a language model would be a tiny corner of what that thing was actually built on top of. You'd need goal setting and all sorts of other bits and pieces. So yeah, for the moment, the science fiction stuff doesn't really interest me, although it is a little bit alarming seeing more and more of the very senior figures in this industry sort of tip the hat and say, you know, we're getting a little bit nervous about this stuff now. Yeah, so that would be Jeff Hitchin and Yosha Benjo. And I, I saw this meme this morning that Jan LeCun was like happily saying this is fine. <laughs> Being the third yeah. Turing Award winner. <laughs> but you'll see a lot of the AI safety, the people who've been talking about AI safety for the longest are getting really angry about the science fiction scenarios because they're like, no, the, the thing that we need to be talking about is the harm that you can cause with these models right now today, which is actually happening. And the science fiction stuff kind of ends up distracting from that. I love it. You, you, okay, so so uh, Eliezer, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Eliezer has a list of ways that AI will kill us post. And I think, Simon, you could write a list of ways that AI will harm us but not kill us, right? Like the, the, the non-science fiction actual harm ways. I think right. I haven't seen an actual list of like, hey, romance scams, spam. I, I, don't, I don't know what else, but that could be very interesting as a... Hmm. 
practical, practical, like here are the situations we need to guard against because they are more real today than that we need to think about, warn about. Obviously, you've been a big advocate of prompt injection awareness, even though you can't really solve them. And (laughs) I I worked through a scenario with you, but yeah. Yeah, prompt injection is a whole other side of this, which is, I mean, that if you want a risk from AI, the risk right now is everyone who's building puns are building systems that attackers can trivially subvert into stealing all of their private data, unlocking their house, all of that kind of thing. So that's another very real risk that we have today. Yeah, I think in all our personal bios, we should edit in prompt injections already. Like in, on my website, I want to edit in a personal prompt injection so that if I get scraped, like I all know if someone's like reading from a script, right? That, uh, that is generated by an AI bot. I've seen people do that on LinkedIn already and they get, <laughs> they get recruiter emails saying, hey, I didn't read your bio properly and I'm just an AI script, but would you like a job? Yeah, it's fascinating. <laughs> okay, all right. So tr- trying to stay uh, roughly on topic, um, I, I think I think this 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 moat is you know it's a peek under the curtain of the, the the internal panic within Google. I think it is very va- very validated. I'm not so sure they should care so much about small models or, or like on device models, but the other stuff is interesting. There was a comment at the end that you had, Simon, about as for OpenAI, OpenAI themselves, OpenAI doesn't matter, right? So this is a Google document talking about Google's position in the market and what Google should be doing. But they had a comment here about OpenAI. They also said OpenAI had no moat, which is a Interesting and brave comment, given that OpenAI, you know, is the leader in in a lot of these innovations. Well, one thing I will say is that I think we might have identified who within Google wrote this document now. There's a version of it floating around with a name. And I looked them up on LinkedIn. They're heavily involved in the AI corner of Google. So my guess is that at Google, done this when I've worked for companies, I'll put out a memo. I'll write up a Google Doc and I'll email email it around. And it's nowhere near the official position of the company or of the executive team. It's somebody's opinion. And so I think it's more likely that this particular document is somebody who works for Google and has an opinion and distributed internally and and then it got leaked. I don't know if it's necessarily represents Google's sort of institutional thinking about this. I think it probably should. Again, this is such a well-written document. It's so well argued that if I was an executive at Google and I read that, I would, I would be thinking pretty hard about it. But yeah, oh. I don't think we should see it as, as sort of the official secret internal position of the company. Yeah. First of all, I might promote that person. Because he's clearly more. Oh, uh... definitely. He's 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 really. This is a. It's. I, I would hire this person on the strength of that document. <laughs> but second but... of all, this is more about OpenAI. Like I, I'm not interested in Google's, you know, official statements about OpenAI. But I was just interested, like his assertion that OpenAI doesn't have a moat. That's a bold statement. Like, I don't know. Just got just got the best people. <laughs> well, I, I would I would say two things here. One, it's really interesting, just at a meta meta quote point that that they even approached it this way of having this public leak it, it, it kind of t- talks a little bit to the fact that they, they they felt that that doing doing internally like wasn't going to get anywhere or or maybe this speaks to, to some of the like middle management type stuff or, or within google and then to the the the, the point about like open and not having a moat I think for for large language models, it, it will be over over time kind of a race to the bottom, just because the switching costs are, are are so low compared with traditional cloud and SaaS. And you know, yeah, there will be differences in, in in quality, but but like over time, if you look at the limit of these things, like the I think Sam Altman you know has been quoted a few times saying that the 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 price of marginal price of intelligence will go to zero over time. 
and the marginal price of energy powering that intelligence will, will also head over time. And in that world, if you're you're providing large language models, they become commoditized. Like, yeah, what, what is what is your mode at that point? I don't know. I think they're extremely well positioned as a team and as a company for leading this space. I'm not that, that worried about that. But it is something from a strategic point of view to keep in mind about large language models becoming a commodity. So it's quite short. So I think it's worth just reading the, that, that entire section. It says, epilogue, what about open AI? All of this talk of open source can feel unfair given OpenAI's current closed policy. Why do we have to share if they won't? That's talking about Google sharing. But the fact of the matter is we are already sharing everything with them in the form of the steady flow of poached senior researchers. Until we spend that time, secrecy is a moot point. I love that. That's so salty. <laughs> and, and in the end, OpenAI doesn't matter. They are making the same mistakes that we are in their posture relative to open source. And their ability to maintain an edge is necessarily in question. Open source alternatives can and will eventually eclipse them unless they change their stance. In this respect, at least, we can make the first move. So the argument this, this paper is making is that Google should... Go, go like meta and, and just lean right into open sourcing it and engaging with the wider open source community much more deeply, which OpenAI have very much signaled they are not willing to do. But yeah, uh, it's, it's, it, read the whole thing. The whole thing is full of little snippets like that. It's just super fun. Yes, yes, read the whole thing. I, I also appreciated the timeline because it set a lot of really great context for people who are out of the loop. So yeah. Yeah. And right. the, the final conspiracy theory is that this got leaked right before Sundar and Satya and Sam all went to the White House this morning. So. Yeah, did it happen? I haven't caught up. Did, did the White House issued a statement. No, that I, I just saw. I just saw the photos of them going into the the White House. I haven't I haven't seen any post meeting updates. Yeah. I think it's a big win for Anthropic to be at that table. Oh cool. yeah, for yeah. sure. And Cohere is not there. I was like, hmm, interesting. Well, but anyway. Yeah. Yeah, they need they need some help. Okay, well, I, I I promise to keep this relatively tight. Spaces do tend to have a have a tendency of dragging on. But before we go, anything that you all want to plug, anything that you're working on currently, maybe go around to Simon. Are you still working on dataset? <laughs> I am. I am. I'm having a bit of it. So Dataset's my open source project that I've been working on. It's about helping people analyze and publish data. I am having an existential crisis of it at the moment because I've got access to the chat GPT code interpreter mode, and you can upload Please. a SQLite database to that, and it will do all of the things that, I, that were on my roadmap for the next 12 oh months. My God. So that's frustrating. So I'm basically, I'm leaning Dataset. My interest in Dataset and AI are, are rapidly crossing over. I'm a lot harder about the AI features that I need to build on top of Dataset to make sure it stays relevant in a chat GPT can do most of the stuff that it does already. But yeah, the thing I'll plug, my blog, simonwillison.net, I am now updating it daily with stuff because AI moves, moves so quickly. And I have a Substack newsletter, which is effectively my blog but in email form sent out a couple of times a week which please subscribe to that or rss feed on my blog or, or whatever because i'm trying to keep track of all sorts of things and i'm publishing a lot at the moment yes you you are and we love you very much for it because you, you are a very good reporter and technical deep diver into things into all the things thank you simon travis are you ready to announce? So I guess you've announced it some, somewhere. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I, I just founded a company. I'm working on a framework for building reliable agents that aren't toys and focused on more constrained use cases. So, you know, I, I look at kind of AGI and these, these Autogy type, type projects as like jumping all the way to, to, to self-driving. And, and we, we, we kind of want to want to start with some more anger and really focus on, on reliable primitives to, to start that. And that'll be an open source TypeScript project. I'll be releasing the first version of that soon. And that's, that's it. Follow me you know, on here for, for this type of stuff. I, I, I everything AI.
and, and spam his ChatGPT bot while you still can. Oh yeah, the ChatGPT Twitter bot has about one hundred twenty-five thousand followers now. It's still running. I, I'm not sure if it's burn your credits. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, can you I, say I how much you spent? Actually, no, no. Well, I think probably totally like like a thousand bucks or something. But I, it's it's sponsored by OpenAI, so I haven't I haven't actually spent any real money. What? That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Well, once once I changed originally the logo was the ChatGPT logo and it was the green one and then they they hit me up and asked me to change it. So now it's a purple logo. Yeah, um yeah. and they're 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 cool with that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah OpenAI sending takedown notices to people with GPT stuff apparently now. So it's yeah, it's a little bit of a gray area. I want to write more on, on modes. I've been actually collecting and meaning to write a piece on modes. And today I saw the memo. I was like, oh, okay. Like I guess today's the day we talk about modes. So thank you all. Thanks, thanks Simon. Thanks Travis for for jumping on, and thanks to all the audience for engaging on this with us. We'll continue to engage on Twitter. But thanks to everyone. Well, thanks, everyone. thanks everyone. Bye. Thanks, thanks everyone. Bye. All right. Thanks everyone. Bye.